Now let's turn for our second reading and our theme and our text to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 17. chapter begins, of course, with the account of the transfiguration, which we've been looking at since Thursday evening with the help of God. And we began to descend from that mountain uh, last evening, and we'll again revisit the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration by reading at verse 14. And when they, now that's a reference to uh, Christ, Peter, James, and John, who had been on top of the mountain. When they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often <coughs> falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said to him, Why could we not cast him out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And at the end of verse 19, we read this important question that the disciples asked. Jesus, that's the nine disciples at the foot of the mountain. After their failure to cast out an evil spirit, they ask, Why could we not cast him out? Jesus responds, Because of your unbelief. And then in verse 21, he tells them that however, or moreover, or even indeed, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So why could we not cast him out? Now in coming to this uh, closing night of our communion, I'd like us just to return one final time to the Mount of Transfiguration. Not so much, of course, the mountain itself, which we've been uh, looking at, the mountain top, but rather the foot of the mountain where we visited last night. And as I mentioned last night at the outset, it's very difficult to imagine a a greater contrast than the one we find between the scene at the top of the mountain and the scene at the foot of the mountain. At the top we find what is essentially heaven and earth, because God saw fit to recreate, as it were, heaven on that mountain top, a place of purity and holiness and fellowship uh, between Christ, who deemed saints made perfect, and God the Father himself. At the foot of the mountain, of course, we find the devil let loose, and instead of holiness and faith and purity and light, we find darkness and sin and unbelief. As the Lord exclaims when he confronts it, he says, How long shall I be with you, and how long shall I bear with you, as we saw last night? 
Now, you'll remember that Christ had taken the three disciples, the three most prominent ones, Peter, James, and John. He had taken them to the top of the mountain to pray. And he had, of course, left the other nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain. Again, briefly, you'll remember that in the morning, after the transfiguration had taken place, which was a nighttime event, a crowd began to gather at the foot of the mountain. And one person in that crowd was a man who had a very troubled son, a deeply troubled son, who's described here as an epileptic, but of course it becomes very plain that his symptoms are epileptic symptoms. The real problem with the man is that he was actually possessed by evil to an unusual degree. Uh, the, the degree to which evil possesses us can vary. We are all by nature under the influence of Satan and in his grip and grasp. And as I mentioned last night, let's never forget that. We are all in the grip of the evil one. But some people may be given over to it, and this young man certainly was. Now, when the man took his son to be helped by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord was absent, of course. He was at the top of the mountain. And so, of course, he turned to the nine disciples for help, and legitimately so. They are ambassadors of Christ. They are ministers of the gospel and heralds of the kingdom, empowered to raise the dead, to heal the sick, and so on. But staggeringly, they failed. All nine of them failed to cast the evil spirit out of the child. As we saw last night, of course, the scribes immediately began to argue with these nine disciples, and in some respects they were easy pickings because their failure was evident to everybody. And they began to argue with them and to shame them. And of course, as I mentioned last night, it's quite easy for the world to argue from the weakness of the disciples to the weakness of the master. And to conclude that the disciples are frauds, and that the master, therefore, is a fraud too. And the more weakness and sin the world sees in itself, the more likely it is to conclude that the whole thing is actually a sham and not really true at all. Now, we saw last night how Christ dealt with the unbelief of the scribes and especially the unbelief of the Father, who thankfully had an unbelief that was contained within faith, or it was accompanied by faith. Um, he had a faith that had unbelief attached to it. It wasn't an unbelief that was struggling to reach faith. It was faith that had unbelief attached. Famously, I believe, help my unbelief. And the Lord did. The Lord did. But that still leaves us with another group, of people at the foot of the mountain struggling with unbelief. And that is the nine disciples themselves. Why could we not cast the evil spirit out? That was obviously their failure. And they knew it was their failure. And the reason they knew it was a failure is because they had been empowered to do exactly that. Now, they weren't empowered to do it when they became disciples. They didn't have the power to do these things. Neither, in fact, were they empowered to do these things immediately after they became apostles, but a short while after they became apostles, not too long really before this, we're told that Jesus did empower them. When he had called the twelve, he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now notice that. Give them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. That's from Matthew himself. Luke tells us that not only did they get that authority, but they used that authority. And in their ministry, as they went from city to city before the Lord, they were casting out these evil spirits. So not only was it an authority that they were given, it was one that they used and one that they used successfully. They did these things by faith. And there was never any word 
of failure on the part of these apostles. So this is a failure to do what they had done before. And in that way, it's an unexpected failure too. It's not something anybody saw coming. They didn't see it coming themselves. They are suddenly powerless. And, of course, that led, as I mentioned last night, I think, it led to confusion. It led to, effectively, the world seeing a paralyzed church. It led to the unbelievers mocking their weakness. Because, well, as I mentioned, it's hard to say, oh, failure reflects on our master. No, it shouldn't, in a way. I, I, I went into that last night. But sadly, it does. If we are living epistles, known and read of all men, if the writing is illegible or if it's smudged, of course, the message is not getting through. But these nine, of course, friends, are at the same time men of God. And, of course, they were troubled by their failure. As every true child of God would be, I'll apply that to ourselves in a moment. But they were troubled for themselves. And again, just like any child of God would be, they're also troubled because of the trouble they brought on others. Sometimes when we fail, our failure may be so obvious that it brings others into uncomfortable situations. We can sadly bring reproach upon the church as well as ourselves. And if we are Christians indeed, then that will trouble us. It will trouble us more than any trouble that we brought upon ourselves. And I'm sure very often, at least when you're in the right place yourself, you certainly pray that you be kept from sin and from being an offence. And what worries you in these things is certainly that you sin against God, but that you give offence to others. And it's not really the reproach upon yourself, but the reproach upon the church. And how often you pray that when you're in the right spirit, that you would not bring reproach upon the church of Christ. That surely is a mark of grace and a great mark of grace. They were troubled by it. And afterwards, when the crowd had dispersed and when they had got to the privacy of a house, Mark tells us that it was in the house this question was asked, they asked Christ privately, what went wrong? <coughs> what, what went wrong? Or what's wrong with us? Why did we fall? Or why did we fail? Now, in, in doing it, um, in asking the question like that, they, they did the right thing. Obviously, it's the right thing when we lose strength and power to come to God with it. It's important that we notice that we lose strength and power. I mean, sometimes it may not be so obvious to us that we've lost, uh, lost our strength and our power. I think it's quite possible for a time as Christians to have lost it and not really to realize it. Uh, we're told that when Samson shook himself, uh, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him, but he knew it not. He, he didn't know it. Now that has additional circumstances to be considered, but nonetheless, I think that is a principle that may be true, that a person for some length of time can lose the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and not really be aware of it. But the moment they're aware of it, Praise the Lord, they went to the Lord with it. And it's good that they did it in private too. This is not the kind of thing that's good to hear in public. We always need to be careful about what we speak about in public and what we speak about in private. And particularly as Christians, we need to watch what we talk about publicly. Sometimes you find letters and papers that would be better sent privately. You find things being spoken about in fellowship. That would be better spoken about privately. Sometimes you find things being said in pulpits that would be better said privately. And thankfully they had the wisdom here to ask these questions of the Lord when they were aside, when they were with him. What was wrong? And why did we fail? Now the answer to that is very short in one way and certainly it's very clear and very stark because of your unbelief. Of course, the Lord elaborates, as we'll see in a moment, but that is the short answer. There may be a long answer, but that's the short answer. Why did you fail? Well, you failed because of your unbelief. Christians you may be, Christians you are, and you were strong Christians, but for now 
you have given way to unbelief. Now, I want to look at that, obviously, more closely, but uh, before we do, I think it's just important uh, to note one thing. And that is that they should, I suppose you would gather this from what I've said anyway, and the texts I've referred to, but they should have been able to deal with this situation. If their faith, in other words, was properly functioning, they should have been able to cast that spirit out. I am well aware that the Lord says that this kind, this kind of evil spirit, this particular manifestation of, of evil cannot be dealt with except by prayer and fasting. But that should not be understood as some kind of excuse for these disciples. As though the Lord was saying, oh well, you know, how could you be able to deal with it? Because this could only be dealt with by prayer and fasting. In other words, as though the Lord was saying, well, this is a really difficult case. And I don't expect you to have been able to confront such a difficult case. I don't expect you to have been able to deal with this manifestation of Satan. This manifestation of evil in your face, I, I don't expect you to have been able to deal with it because this kind can't come out except by prayer and fasting. But of course, that's not really what the Lord means. <coughs> Certainly, while I'm saying that, let me say and acknowledge that there are certain <coughs> manifestations of evil uh, that can only be dealt with by what we would call special prayer and fasting. That can happen nationally, for example, if, and it happened recently even with COVID. Uh, because what well, certainly our church, I don't know how many other churches, uh, called the people to a time of prayer and fasting. That has always been the case under both the Old Covenant and the New, that there are times and seasons when the providence of God either calls for thanksgiving for a major deliverance or else humiliation, prayer and fasting because of a particular crisis. Now, undoubtedly there are such things. But this isn't one of them, actually. When the Lord says that this is a situation that calls for special prayer and fasting, that's not what he means. That's not what he's saying. After all, if that was the case... Why rebuke them for unbelief? Why rebuke them for unbelief? And as well, why just blame them for their failure at all? So obviously he doesn't mean by prayer and fasting, special prayer and fasting, but just ordinary prayer and fasting. The kind of prayer and fasting that should have characterized their lives anyway. The kind of kind of prayer and fasting that should characterize your life and mine as well. The ongoing disciplined life of calling upon the name of the Lord with zeal, earnestness, hope, love, expectation, zeal. The kind of prayer that should always characterize us. Had that been right now in the nine disciples' life, there would have been no failure. They would have been able to cast out the devil. In other words, there was a time in their life, not that long ago, when they would have dealt with this situation. But sadly, not now. Their unbelief had led to a lack of power and that led to their failure. Now then, let's look at this uh, a bit more closely and uh, let's see with God's help what the problem was and what the cure is. Uh, thank God there's always a cure for whatever problem there is. Let's begin with the first part of the problem which is prayer. This time can go out by prayer and fasting. Now, we already saw, particularly on Thursday and on Friday too, we saw the lack of prayer that had come into the lives of Peter and James and John. It was manifest 
when they started to fall asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll remember they were called to pray on that mountain. The night had been set apart for special prayer, so prayer wasn't simply a privilege that night, it was a duty. And in the duty of prayer, they slept. Same thing has happened not too long after this, really, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Duty to pray, but they slept. That failure itself rooted back in their failure to accept Christ's teaching. For the first time in their lives, they had balked at something that the Lord taught and refused to accept it. That in itself can be traced back to pride. That pride issued in a lack of teachableness which resulted in a decline in their prayer life. We saw that. Let's leave it there with Peter, James and John. Let's come to the nine. Are they any different? Have they escaped this problem? Well, no, they haven't. Let me begin with this. When the Lord took the three to the top of the mountain to pray, we can be quite sure that he left the nine at the foot of the mountain to pray as well. We needn't think that he simply left the nine and took the three to pray. Can I again just refer you simply to the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Lord repeated the practice there, he took the, all the disciples into the garden and he told them all to pray. And then he took the three to pray with him in the innermost part of the garden. From there, of course, you remember, he removed himself a stone's throw from the three and fell on his face in special prayer before the Father. But the point I'm making for now is that all the disciples were called to pray that night, three with him. The same is true here. It's not as though the Lord said, oh, well, you do whatever tonight. You pray here at the foot of the mountain. For my reasons known to me and reasons which lie in my sovereignty, I take these three men and I take them to pray with me. We saw already some other reasons why. But make no mistake, the nine disciples at the fruit of the mountain were called to pray also. And are we really to believe that they didn't sleep? If Peter, James and John slept, slept actually through part of a transfiguration, slept even when the Lord himself was praying, when they were the three most spiritual and most advanced of the disciples, are we supposed to believe that the nine wrestled earnestly in prayer all day long as the Lord had told them to? No, we can't suppose that. <coughs> There's a lack of prayer in them too. Let me put it this way to you. Had they prayed that night, had they prayed, would they have fallen into this temptation? The Lord said that in Gethsemane, of course. When he came and found the three of them asleep, he said, Can you not watch with me one hour? He said, Watch and pray, lest you fall into the temptation. There's a temptation coming. It's making its way towards you. It's just outside the garden. Whether you see it or not, I see it. And I know it's coming. And not only will it come to you, but you will fall headlong into it unless you watch with me and you pray with me. Now, of course, that's what I mean by saying that had the nine prayed <coughs> through that night as the Lord called them to pray through that night, it would have been a different story in the morning. The man would have had a different experience and his son would have had a different experience and there would be no shame or reproach brought on the cause of Christ. So there's a lack of prayer. That's involved in their unbelief. But there's another factor too. And I, I referred to this, I think. I made a brief reference to it, I think, on Friday. You'll remember that immediately after this incident, the, the Lord moves on to Capernaum. 
And as he moves to Capernaum with his disciples, we have a strange phenomenon because they're not together. The Lord is on his own and the disciples are following. And a good part of that journey is in silence, certainly on the Lord's part. The disciples, of course, are busy talking, but Christ doesn't interfere with their talking at all. He waits until they've arrived in Capernaum, and then he turns round to them and he says, What were you discussing on the road? What were you discussing on the road? We're told that the disciples were silent. And they were silent because they were ashamed. They were ashamed. What were they ashamed about? Well, because they were discussing who would be the greatest among them. Who was the greatest and who would be the greatest. And greatness there is defined in terms of honour and status and dignity. Just a little like what James and John's mother had asked for them. Grant that my two sons may sit one on your right and one on your left in the kingdom. Because normally we think of greatness in terms of status and stature. It's not once or twice but thrice that the Lord had to teach the disciples that greatness in the kingdom involves service. He who is great amongst you, let him be your servant. His final illustration of that was when he donned himself with servant clothing and he washed the feet of the disciples at the Lord's table because none of them would wash the feet of the rest. Because, amazingly, even on that occasion, there was an argument about who should do that. I suppose the argument wasn't necessarily of one kind. It's quite easy to say to see someone who says, well, I don't think he should do that. It's not necessarily even a case of, well, that's not my duty to do that, but you could see someone, for, for perhaps even like Peter, saying, well, John certainly shouldn't do that duty. Is, is he not the one who lies close to the Lord's breast? But everybody thinks that greatness involves not doing that duty. You see, their conception of greatness is inconsistent with doing a duty like that. And the Lord says, that's not the way it works. Greatness in my kingdom is to serve. And in whatever capacity you serve, the more you serve, and the more of a servant heart that you serve, the greater you are in the kingdom of God. That's quite a thought. It's important to remember these things because we too fall into that trap. We tend to think that such and such a person is great in the kingdom. That's a great Christian. That's a distinguished Christian. When in reality the greatest and most distinguished Christian may be somebody of a very humble service that is hardly noted in the church of God. But God notices these things. He notices a heart that is full of love towards himself and works towards himself, not expecting gratitude in the church of God, not expecting honour or exaltation, because what they do, they do for him. They do for him. And that's what he notices. But they weren't of that spirit. They were discussing who would be the greatest. Now, where do you think that discussion had come from? It doesn't just come out of thin air. These discussions arise from certain situations. Well, I suppose you could say they come from pride. Of course they do. But what's the reason for it? I mean, what occasions it? What is it that's brought it out? Well, I've no doubt that it's the separation of the three from the nine. That caused a problem on the evening that it happened. Now, be careful, you and me. That doesn't mean that, we, that the Lord was careless in separating the three from the nine because that's his prerogative. Absolutely always is. It's the duty of any separated three to privilege not to be proud. It's the duty of any nine who may be passed over not to be envious. Because whatever we do, we do for the Lord. And we don't question his wisdom or his prerogative or his choice in these things. So that night was dominated not by prayer, but what's the meaning of this? This is the second time this has happened. This is the second time they are called away into the Lord's presence and we're just 
left behind. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean for us? What does it say about us? Does it mean that we're not as holy as they are? Does it mean that they have a higher status than us? Does it mean that the Lord loves them perhaps more than he loves us? And we could maybe understand that and how that would wound them. And of course, this goes a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when they make that little journey from the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum, the matter is made worse by the fact that the three who have come down are allowed to tell what they saw and heard. And the Bible tells us that they kept that commandment. So at no point did they actually tell the remaining nine disciples what they had seen and heard. Now, depending on the state of our heart, that can be an irritation. If somebody says, well, I, I saw something, you know, I, I heard, I was in on a conversation, I saw something, but I, I can't share it, you know. You can see, if you're not in the right place spiritually, well, the person who says it could be in the wrong place and be proud of that. The person who hears it can start getting envious and be full of resentment. And um, sometimes it takes very little for thoughts like that to just dominate us and just take hold of our lives. Saul, there the king, I mean, he would... He was content to tolerate David in his presence for a significant amount of time until he heard a song being sung. And the song being sung was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Uh, it's one of these things that, you know, things stick in your mind from childhood. But I remember as a boy reading the children's Bible that I had, and I always used to wonder what problem Saul had with that, you know, because... There he is, killing his thousands. That was a childish innocence, maybe, on my own part. And you should be happy with that. And of course, when I look at it from a, a more spiritual point of view, yes, you should be happy with that. Although he wasn't happy with that at all. All he could see was not that he had slain his thousands, but that David had slain his ten thousands. And that that's the way people seemed to think about himself and David. And that's what mattered to Saul. Sad to say that's what dominated Saul's life what people thought of him. Even when Samuel gave Saul his final message, I, by final message I don't mean the message on, on that night when uh, the witch of Endor was consulted. I, I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to the final message when Saul had been persistently disobedient and Samuel was rebuking Saul. Uh, Saul and, and he had fearful words for Saul. Saul turned round and said to Samuel, Please honour me in front of this people. Now, that's an astonishing thing to say. It's the judgment of God is falling upon your head and all you can think about is how it looks to the people. Honour me in front of this people. No wonder that megalomaniac consumed by jealousy and by pride just went down, down and down until on the last night of his life he consults a witch and he's dead by suicide on the following day. That's what jealousy does. That, that's what pride does. Saul was so consumed with pride and envy that he was actually consumed by it. <clears throat> Paul, Paul warns the Galatian congregations about that. If you bite each other, and if you devour each other, he says, take heed that you don't consume each other. If you bite and devour each other, take heed that you don't consume each other. So instead of prayer that night, there was just a murmur of envy and pride. I suppose... Pride more on the three at the top, envy more the nine at the bottom. Now these things, envy and pride, they always produce two things. Let me start with the, the more obvious one first. They, they actually produce trouble amongst the brethren. I, I mentioned there Galatians 5 just a minute ago, where 
Paul speaks about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. If you bite and devour one another, he says, take heed that you're not consumed by each other. He then says, after describing the way the flesh and the spirit lust against each other, he then breaks off again and he says, don't be conceited and don't envy each other. Now, conceit comes when honour is given to you, the three at the top. Envy when you seem to be passed over the nine at the bottom. Don't be conceited. Don't envy each other. Rather, he says, if you're alive in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The only safeguard against the negative is the positive. Walk in the Spirit, deliberately, consciously, daily. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't spend your life being conceited (coughs) or envying another. Or as James says in his letter... If bitter envy arises in your hearts, he says, what will come out is devilish. James chapter 3. If bitter envy rises in your hearts, what will come out is devilish. He says, where envy and self-seeking is, there is confusion and every evil thing. So the first fruit of prayerlessness there really is trouble in the body. The second is the one I just want to dwell on a bit longer. Prayerlessness produces, now here we go, to something that is just very blatantly a problem right across the church in the Western world. That's a lack of spiritual power in our lives. Lack of prayer equals lack of power. When you leave off Earnest, disciplined, regular, closet prayer. Closet prayer is the old term for what Christ spoke about. In Matthew 6, Christ says, Don't do your private prayers in public. He says, There's a place for standing in a synagogue and praying when you have a public prayer meeting. Of course, it's right and lawful to do it then. But he says, When your private prayers are being done ostentatiously, when you let people know you're doing them, what time they start, and what time to finish them. There's a problem. She says, forget people. Forget people. When it comes to your business with God, he says, get into your room yourself, where God is. Shut your door, he says. Shut yourself in space. Shut the world out. And in that portion of time, where it's just you and your Father, pray to your Father in the secret place. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The result, in other words, of a closet prayer, the the result of a, a real, close, personal, zealous, earnest, disciplined, regular, daily prayer life is visible. How is it visible? In power. In power. If we leave that off, we will grieve the Holy Spirit will grieve the Holy Spirit. And uh, that can happen quite quickly. It happened quickly in the disciples' lives. For, for a year and a half they were doing well and then it just turned. And it's not so much sin that causes it, but sin that's not repented of. That's a far bigger problem than sin itself. It's a bigger sin not to repent of the sin than the sin actually was. And it's obvious on the six-day journey to the Mount of Transfiguration, in other words, after Christ had rebuked Peter and the disciples for their failure to to be learning properly, it's obvious on that six-day journey to the Mount of the Transfiguration that the disciples just hadn't taken it to heart, and it affected their prayer life. A loss of power. They failed in their work. Now that kind of failure in the work, let me begin with myself. I'm sad to say it's easiest seen in ministers of the gospel. When they lose power, sometimes they even lose the gift. But the power goes before the gifts go. And maybe it's not evident to themselves, but it's evident to the people. There's just no power there. There may be no shift in the teaching. It may still be the same 
no life, no power, no zeal, no urgency. There's a kind of mechanicalness about the whole thing. And if you were going to go deep down into that minister's life, I would guess that the problem began in a closet. Or at least that it was manifest there where God alone knows. God alone knows that you're not there. And God alone knows that you're not doing what you should be doing there. When I say God alone knows, well, other people detect it too, but they're not quite sure what. But the Lord is not rewarding openly anymore. And that powerlessness will last until prayer comes back and repentance comes back into that minister's life. After all, these nine men here are ministers. We can't forget that. That's what they are primarily. That's their chief calling in their lives. They are ministers of Christ. And their power will not return until they rediscover prayer and fasting. But this lack of power may be in all our lives. And sometimes you can feel it in prayer itself. It's Every time you pray, there's, there's no real sense of prevailing with God. No real sense of, of contact with God and some kind of interaction and some kind of transaction. Your prayers are cold and routine, perfunctory, not done so much, not done so earnestly. But it spills over because the Father is withdrawing the open reward. Even in your witness, there's less power in your interaction with others. There's less of an ability to find a word in season, to speak to somebody else who's weary. There's, there's just less, less power. Less power even in resisting the devil. When you used to be able to resist temptation, to do this or to do that, you can't do it. I mean, the, the power just isn't there. There's a temptation to do a simple thing that's wrong, and you can't resist it. You fall into it and little by little you die or little by little you fall asleep or little by little you become cold until perhaps at last you're just a shadow of what you used to be. So that lack of power is tied to lack of prayer and the presence of pride and envy. Pride's eldest daughter is envy. Envy comes from pride. Pride doesn't come from envy but envy comes from pride. That's why the three at the top were proud, the nine at the bottom were proud and envious. What's the cure? Thank God there is one. Thank God there is one. This goes back to what I was saying the other day, how patient Christ is. How patient Christ is with all of us. I mean, if you're going to be honest, you can't say that you can't find yourself. You may be a very young Christian and Possible you, you haven't come here. And maybe God will preserve you from this type of thing to an extraordinary degree. That is possible too. But it's more than likely that most of you can identify yourselves at some point with what's happened to the nine here. But God cares. And in that house, he doesn't tear the disciples apart. He tells them what's wrong. Well, first of all, he diagnoses. He says, the problem is your unbelief. That in itself has been caused by a lack of prayer and by sin finding a place in your heart. If you sometimes wonder why you're struggling with unbelief, that's where to look. I mean, I, I would go first of all well, to these two places. I would say, am I entertaining a sin of some kind in my heart? Maybe even just resentment, bitterness at some Maybe even bitterness about being passed over. I mean, who knows? Entertaining some kind of sin... And I would look at the throne of grace and ask myself, where am I there? Where am I there? Because the Lord says that the answer to this is actually prayer and fasting. Fasting is an important and a neglected subject, but can't go into it obviously right now. I hope to very shortly perhaps with you, but let me just emphasize here that this is not a reference to a special fast that would have left them specially equipped. It's a reference to a regular fast that has disappeared in their lives, along with their prayer. Along with their prayer. Fasting anyway only has meaning in connection with prayer. And of the two, prayer is the most important, let's make no mistake about that. 
But fasting is always a sign of when you're really taking prayer seriously, when you're really setting yourselves apart from it. And that's why it's one sign of an earnest, disciplined prayer life. It's the prayer that primarily matters. Clearly the nine and the three were not praying and fasting. But are you praying? Am I praying? Now it's the easiest thing in the world for me to say you're not praying enough and for you to say to me we're not praying enough. That's easy because unless things are well with your soul, very well with your soul, maybe it is true that you feel like your prayer life is not what it should be and not even what it used to be, which it's a more interesting barometer. It's easy to find fault. And let me say too that the (coughs) devil can sometimes harass us with that. Um, I, I remember when I was a, a young Christian, uh, a time when I felt that um, I should be praying more than I was, and this was through the night. And uh, I started to pray, and then, of course, I stopped, as I have to sometime. But immediately the voice said to me, why aren't you praying longer? So I started to pray longer, and then, of course, I stopped, as you have to at some point. But the voice immediately came back, why aren't you praying longer? And of course that could go on. Forever. Forever. And it wasn't long after that that I I happened, well I say happened, I was led by God, thankfully, to be reading a little book by Thomas uh, Goodwin about prayer. And lo and behold, he just mentioned this. He said um, that Satan can sometimes uh, harass young converts by calling them to prayer when it is not a season of prayer. And I thought, so well, well, that was exactly what was happening to me that night. He was actually trying to make me over-righteous, trying to, to burden me with something. And Thomas Goodwin can say, you, you, you can usually tell when that's happening, he says, when, there's, when it comes to you like an imperious command from nowhere, why aren't you praying just now? It's not as though you particularly feel you ought to be or that you feel the Holy Spirit calling you to do it or that you've been neglecting the thing but it's just a kind of harassing thing it's just like a rod or a lash on your back get to prayer, get to prayer, get to prayer so in that respect we need to watch the other side of the thing but my guess is that that's not our problem by and large today that's my guess my guess is it's not the great problem in the western church that we are being harassed to the point of praying all night I don't think so if it is, bear in mind what I've just said. But if you want to measure your prayer, or if I want to measure it, let me take a simple biblical one to measure with it. It doesn't consist maybe in things like times or things like that. But having said that, let me put this to you. Our Saviour came back to the sleeping apostles and said to them, Could you not watch with me one hour? We do not watch with me for one hour. Now I think about that and I think about a prayer meeting which very often takes an hour. And you decide for some reason you can't go and can you hear the voice saying, can you not watch with me one hour? Or let, it even, let us even take it to ourselves very personally in connection with our own closet. Could you give the Lord, say, half an hour in the morning and could you give him half an hour at night? Could you perhaps resume a practice that maybe has slipped, has it? That's just for your soul and God and my soul and God, a practice that has slipped that maybe just you and your Bible, not even another book, but just you and your Bible and God behind a closed door. Read your Bible, in other words, listen to God speaking to you for ten minutes. You call upon his name for ten minutes. Maybe you listen to God for another five minutes and maybe you speak to, pray to God for another five minutes. Maybe do the same thing in the evening. Is that too much to ask? Could you not hear Christ maybe saying, can you not watch with me one hour? And you say to me, you say, oh, you're a minister, that's easy for you. That's your calling, that's your job. It's easy for you to find half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night. You can find two hours in the morning and two hours at night. Oh, well, that's all right, but that's you looking at me. Uh, 
you look at yourself and me look at myself. Can you honestly say you have no time to give the Lord an hour? Half an hour you and the Bible and God in the morning and half an hour at night? Was there a time in your life when you did have that time? Was there? Can you honestly say you were uh, more, can you honestly say you were less busy then than you are now? Perhaps it was through then that you found the time because you made the time. Is there half an hour for your phone? Is there half an hour for Facebook? Is there half an hour for the television? Is there half an hour for newspaper? Is there half an hour for a sleep during the day? In all that, can you not hear your Lord and Saviour Jesus saying, can you not watch with me just for one hour? After all, to leave off prayer is to invite all kinds of sin in your life. Believe me, it is. I've known that myself. To leave off prayer is to invite sin to take up residence in the house of your heart. To take up prayer again is to begin to expel it and to regain power with God and with men. And that's a worthwhile exchange. Like I said the other day, sin and prayer just can't live together. One will drive out the other. I'm not the judge of these things, but I would find it hard to believe that we were a more prayerful generation than our forefathers. And I would guess if there is one area in life where we fall short, it's that. And that's the reason why we fall short of so many other things. They seem to know how to pray. The sad thing about all this is that we can get by on what we've got. That's the sad thing. Because there's a way in which we can make it to the end still lukewarm. There's a way in which we can. There's a way in which we can just carry on as we are, maybe, as we might be, and in a lukewarm condition we will still make it and we will enter into glory, even if we've been hard-hearted, half-hearted. <coughs> but I'll tell you one thing, that will never be enough to meet a crisis in this world, and it will never be enough to recover the Church of God and rebuild the Church of God. It'll be enough to be in maintenance mode for the rest of your life. But it'll never be enough to rise up triumphant and to be more than conquerors for Christ. Because it's the crisis that reveals who we are. And that's in effect what the Lord is saying. He said, moreover, indeed I'm telling you that this kind can't come out by prayer and fasting. This kind, yes, this kind. In other words, he says to the nine, you might have dealt with another situation... There may have been another evil spirit that you might have been able to dismiss. There might have been another perplexing and difficult situation that you might have been able to heal. But not this one. And that, of course, is what really matters. Why? Because, well, I'll tell you why. Our day and our generation is one of evil. It's, when, it's one in which... Iniquity has come in like a flood. Foundations have been shaken. The church itself is tottering. The very fabric of things is being pulled apart. The creation ordinances have been trampled on. Sabbath, marriage, sexuality, everything that God ordained at the beginning. People are falling away from the Lord in mass in the country. Is that a time for you and for me just to be in maintenance mode? Is that a time for us to be half-hearted and just to go on as we are, perhaps even at a lesser level than we were before? Is the Lord not calling you and me and even urging us through a communion season to say, enough of that. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of limping along like that. I'm, I'm tired of not witnessing. I'm tired of not praying as I should be praying. And I'm tired of not being at the ordinances as I should be at the ordinances. I wish to be what I was. And I wish to be what I might be. And what by the grace of God he can make me. If I return to prayer and fasting.
Because a church that disciplines herself like that is a church that the world will begin to notice and that God will begin to notice too. And God will indeed respond accordingly. And you'll notice here, and I'm just bringing this to a close, you'll notice the encouragement the Lord gives for this kind of thing. It's easy to miss this in verse 20. After they asked him, why, why didn't we do this? Why did we fail? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. And then he says this interesting thing. For assuredly, I say to you, he says, that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Indeed, moreover, which is better than whoever. Moreover, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Faith like a mustard seed. Now, if you just take that expression on its own, you might say to yourself, well, hold on a minute. Does that mean that if I just have the slightest bit of faith that I'm going to be able to accomplish all that, that nothing will be impossible and I can move mountains? No, that's not actually what the Lord means here. He doesn't mean faith here in the sense of saving faith. He means faith here in the sense of a faith that gets hold of God and believes in God and expects God to do things. That's what he means by faith here. Faith that is in action. In other words, these nine disciples had saving faith. There's no dispute about that. When Christ says your unbelief is a problem, he doesn't mean they had no saving faith. Of course they had saving faith. But they didn't have the kind of faith that just leapt towards God and laid hold of him and accomplished things in his name and by his strength. Jesus says just a mustard seed of that and things happen. That's what he's saying. Just a mustard seed of that kind of living, expected faith begins to move mountains in the kingdom of God. And if that's not an encouragement to us, to get back to the throne of grace. I honestly don't know what is. What is? It's as though God is just waiting to be gracious and God waiting, waiting to do us good, waiting for us to ask. Um, In fact, when you're going into the closet, it's because the Father is waiting for you there. And maybe that will change the way you view your closet, to think of the Father waiting for you there. Waiting for you there. And I close by saying this, and it's a personal note really, I, I don't often bring personal notes in, but I, I, I want to bring this in and I feel it should, because to some extent I feel like the writer to the Hebrews in saying all these things. The writer to the Hebrews in, um, in chapter 6, there are several, several warnings of course through the letter to the Hebrews, that's why it's sometimes called the, um, the epistle of warning, but... In chapter 6, he, he gives a, a particular strong warning to the people, and then he suddenly turns and he says to them, I am persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. In other words, although I'm saying these things, I look at you and I see something that is different. The reason reason I'm saying that to you tonight, and I feel the Lord laid it on my heart to say it, so I I will say it, is because prior to this communion itself, I I honestly did not think, really, my my family would bear witness, didn't think I could preach once, never mind six times. And very early on the Sabbath morning, in the the very early hours of the Sabbath, uh, my wife doesn't mind me saying this, uh, but she did say to me that she thought I was being upheld in prayer. And my response to her was that that was exactly the thought that was passing through my mind when she said it. Exactly the thought that was passing through my mind when she said it. And I, I was just lying in bed at that time thinking that I am being upheld by people in prayer. Now, um, I've often heard people, I've never been seriously ill, but I've often heard people in serious sickness uh, saying that. And I, sometimes I would wonder, you know, well, how do they know exactly that they're being upheld? I think I've had some situations like that, but not as much as over these days. 
not as much as on the Sabbath morning, when I had a, rem- a remarkable sense that I was being upheld in prayer. That's why, that's why I can say that I am pers- persuaded better things of you. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord always demands to be preached. And who knows who it is that may particularly need such a message as this tonight. Maybe to some extent we all do, but maybe some more than others. This kind can go out by prayer and fasting. And when we look at the evil around us, let's think, yes, yes indeed, it can. Let's stand in prayer. O Lord, our God, we bless you for your counsels and the way in which you call people back to yourself. And how great, O Lord, thy love towards us when you do not cast off those who in their foolishness cast you off. Oh, you do not turn away from those who may have neglected your presence in the sanctuary or in the secret place. How wonderful the never-dying love that you have for your own people, which always draws them back constantly, in spite of apathy and coldness. And we pray that, having thought much, perhaps, in past days of our own weakness, that nonetheless our final thoughts may be with the Lord's strength, with the greatness of your love and your compassion. And may the thoughts of that, more than anything, bring us back to your presence. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Let's say close our service and indeed our uh, communion, which in the session two will be closed with the benediction, will close um, singing in Psalm 80. Before, before uh, we do close, perhaps I should say a couple of things which are also on my heart. Let's first of all to thank those of you who have visited. There have been several people who have been kind enough to remember us uh, in prayer and by your attendance, and it's been a delight to see you with, you with us, and I hope the services are, have been, to some extent, a blessing to yourselves too, and uh, may the Lord bless you for the help you've given, and I'd like also to thank those on behalf of the Mass, just who, are, who have shown ourselves kindness, not just in the prayer I mentioned, but uh, with uh, giving goods to uh, to help with hospitality over the past few days. Supposing the congregation was four times the size it is, we wouldn't have expected to receive so much. So a sincere and hearty thanks for that too. And we know that the Lord sees that too. And he will also reward such things openly. No one does anything in his name that he ignores or overlooks. Psalm 80 then. And the last uh, three stanzas of the psalm. And of course this psalm is, is looking at a a very difficult situation where the church has been brought low and there's much evil in the land. But here's the prayer at the end. Oh, let thy hand be still upon the man of thy right hand. This is a prayer that the Christ would help us. The Son of Man, whom for thyself thou madest strong to stand. Now that happens. If, if the mediator is moved on our behalf, we will not go back nor turn from thee at all. O do thou quicken us, and we upon thy name will call. Turn us again, Lord God of hosts, and upon us vouchsafe to make thy countenance to shine, and so we shall be safe. And it's a lovely thing to stand and to kneel in the light of that countenance. Let's uh, stand to sing these last three stanzas. For Oh, <laughs> 
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.